there's a powerful idea in mental health discussions. The idea of irrationality that we project onto people dealing with mental illness. It's a categorical error because their experience of reality differs from our own. That if you are diagnosed as being paranoid, then the perception of you locking your doors or investing in locks, peeking out the peephole, peeking out through the curtains, commonly people would see that as irrational behavior. But if your experience of reality is that you are being observed, that people are out to get you, then you are responding rationally to that situation. And we can break this down to a substantial difference between the subjective reality and communal reality, which we will define later on. Welcome to this discussion of intersubjectivity, and welcome to the subjective space. So first we need to reestablish the subjective viewpoint we're taking on this notion. On the extreme end of the scale, this would leave us with the idea that we are simply awareness, which is a perspective that needs further elaboration, and as will be my catchphrase this season, we will discuss this in a future episode. But the basic understanding of standpoint we need to begin with is a sort of Nietzschean perspectivism where we can know, to a certain extent, the content of our own experiences this subjective reality we live in, but anything beyond that, even whenever we're able to measure consistency, is up for debate. And a fundamental perspective in establishing this consistency is the intersubjective, the discussions between people regarding their subjective states. A fundamental aspect of this is the notion of epistemic dependence. In this idea of intersubjectivity, then we have the aspect of peer review, of confirmation from others to establish that there is an overlap between how we are experiencing what could generally be called reality versus how others are experiencing that same reality. There's also epistemic dependence in a scientific or even philosophical viewpoint. And the fact that, as discussed in the last episode, people have to specialize in different things. And to increase our knowledge, there has to be an element of trust. I don't have time to actually do the research when it comes to climate change, to do the research for myself. And even people who are doing the research about climate change. It's such a wide and complex topic that there have to be other people to do their part to fulfill different positions at gathering data, interpreting data, where the final product of science is a collaboration in nature. So when it comes to knowing things, we heavily rely on others to help us know things not just in confirmation of our experiences, of our subjective relationship to what may be called the thing in itself, but also to provide for us the information that we would otherwise be unable to access due to the demands on time and skill to obtain 
that information. But we're not talking about epistemology right now. So let's define this distinction between subjective reality and communal reality. Subjective reality would be reality as you experience it. That would be the subjective experience of being alive versus this sense of consistency, this sense of objectivity that is derived from communal agreement. So to reiterate, subjective reality would be me saying that in front of me is a microphone and a laptop and a clipboard of points. And communal reality in that situation would be another person in the room agreeing that there is a microphone, a laptop, a clipboard in front of me. And the importance of this distinction here is separating the way we think of the notion of reality from a subjective standpoint as a being existing in reality versus the more colloquial idea of reality, this thing that is shared by everyone else. And Hegel makes a great point that the problem with Kant's phenomenology is the fact that he doesn't do anything with the thing in itself, the noumena. But again, we will be doing something with this idea of the thing in itself. But what may be more important to keep in mind with this idea of the subjective reality and the communal reality is the challenge it presents to the assumption that the communal reality is, in some way, more real than the subjective reality. Now, this isn't to suggest that everyone should just live within their own spheres of existence, but rather to reframe the idea of addressing the problems that come out between a subjective reality and a communal reality being out of step, not on the same page, as not undoing a delusion, but seeing the harm in someone coming from a distinctly different standpoint from communal reality, and addressing that, getting them on the same page, and operating from the understanding that we are social creatures, and therefore it is in all of our benefit to make sure that we are approaching existence from the same, or from workably similar, standpoints. So if we accept the validity of the subjective interpretations of others, then there must be something there from which we're able to find this workable consistency. Now that's a conversation in itself we will get to in a later segment in this podcast. I'm very excited to be able to, <laughs> to say that it's not in a future one. But the topic of uncertainty and workable consistency is an important thing to note on its own in our discussion of intersubjectivity. While we are living in our own subjective realities, we're able to commune together. We're able to find these markers within this communal reality where if I'm talking about, I would like another glass of wine you have the same understanding that we're at a dinner party, that I have a glass in front of me, which was previously filled with wine, therefore the word another would make sense, and that that expresses my desire, which you are also able to parse, for that experience to happen to me again. 
So while there is much to be said about the thing that we are in mutual contact with, with a fair amount of certainty, excluding brain in the vat arguments, my personal appraisal of which is that they are unlikely, and in any case, there is no risk to assuming that that is not the case, while the risk to assuming that we are simply a brain in a vat, the idea that we are the only conscious being, in contrast to the possibility we are wrong, and that we are affecting other conscious beings from the perspective that they do not possess consciousness, that that latter possibility is a much more frightful risk than behaving as though possibly non-conscious beings have consciousness. And I will be coming back to this standard of operation time and time again that the best option in my eyes is compassion. But we're getting somewhat off topic. What we know is that we have our own subjective experience and that in working together as social creatures, there is something that provides a workable consistency, something where I can communicate an experience. And if you are present, you can confirm that experience. Now, how does this workable consistency play into our idea of intersubjectivity? How are we able to take this and communicate it? Now, the first thing I want to address is my own theory regarding names and communal reality. So for the TLDR, as the kids say, I'd like to establish the idea that when we use a name, a proper noun, we're not referring exactly to the thing itself, but to our own conception of it, that we have a conception in our mind when we refer to the Parthenon or the Eiffel Tower or our own friends, and that a name is simply a convenience of being able to take that conception and put it into communal reality in a way that people can, at the very least, glean what we're talking about through the common agreement of what that name refers to. Comparing it not against the thing in reality, but against their own subjective conception of it. Here's an example I really like to use for this topic. Imagine you go to meet up with two of your friends, and each of you are talking about a friend that you have. The topics change to interesting people in your life. So you, being person A, bring up a writer that you know. He's a poet. He's a playwright, sometimes he dabbles in acting, sometimes he dabbles in nonfiction or philosophy, and your friend person B brings up a friend he knows, who's a very Hemingway-esque sportsman, that he goes out on big game hunting, he's a mountaineer, holds world records for scaling different mountains. And then your mutual friend, person C, knows someone who is a spy, who's acted on behalf of MI6 in both world wars. And that sounds a bit specific for a made-up example. And it is, because I'm referring to Mr. Aleister Crowley, who did all of those things. And the reason why I like to reference him in this situation isn't just because the range of experiences people had in interacting with him 
but also the fact that there's a significant amount of people who will have their own preconceived notions of who Aleister Crowley was as a man, rather than a multifaceted being. But this isn't a discussion of Crowley, but rather the fact that when we are referring to something, whether it's a person, a place, a thing, an idea, we are inherently referring to our subjective, perspectivist conception of what that is, the connotations that we bring along with however we're forming this in our mind of the thing that we are attaching this name to. So when we use names in common parlance, it is a shorthand, a convenience for us to have a mutual sound, a mutual way to refer to these intimate, subjective conceptions of the same general thing we are referring to. And if we look at this in terms of Wittgenstein's language games, we might have a more full conception of this idea as miscommunications between people regarding these names comes down to the fact that we are playing different language games. That there is a, as we've visited earlier in the episode, a disconnect within the communal space of reality where the representation of this name does not sufficiently coincide between my subjective conception and your subjective conception when we're trying to refer to the same thing. That is why, in the example given, those three people could conceivably have a conversation about the same man without ever realizing. Conceivably have this conversation without ever realizing they are discussing the same person if it is left at a vague enough recollection of interesting people that they know. And again, to refer back to the previous episode, this is the intersubjective version of this idea of us playing different characters in different situations. The way people know us, if they know us from school, if they know us from work, if they know us from family reunions, they're not going to have the same conception of us when they refer to us with the same name. They can have these discussions of us with radically different subjective conceptions. Now we can expand this notion out from how we regard people to how we regard the world at large. The example I want to go over is days of the week. If we as a species decide to play a joke on one specific person and all of us, without involving this person in the discussion, decided that, say, Thursdays were now Fridays and Fridays were now Saturdays and so forth and so on, and this person decided to argue back that our new conception of the days of the week was incorrect, they would be in the wrong because there's no meaning to these days of the week beyond this intersubjective agreement. And if we wanted to push this idea, we could speculate on, well, what percentage of the population would need to agree that Sunday is now Saturday for that to be the case. In my opinion, the simplest answer would be to say that it would be a majority 
or at least a majority of those with the power to enforce that viewpoint. But beyond that sort of speculation, I think that conversation would come down to a matter of semantics or sociology, or in any case, it would not be within the realm of our philosophical discourse. What we can take from this, however, is that there is a level of existence beyond just the physical, that there is a communal consistency in reality beyond just the physical consistency in which we can see our subjective realities matching up with others in the communal reality. There is an ideal communal reality. That being a communal reality built upon not what we might call the physical but built upon what we might call the conceptual. So with this, we can reach for the idea of a intersubjective or cultural existence, something that's not quite physical, but most definitely has an effect on our lives. So to expound on this idea, let's start with examples such as Santa Claus or media. Now, Santa is... <laughs> frequently used in the context of debates over what is existence. And my two cents is that, while we wouldn't suggest that there's some sort of man at the North Pole who's actually keeping track of all of us and delivering presents, I've had a philosophy professor suggest that <laughs> suggest that Santa Claus is an alien. I don't think he meant to imply that. But he did, and I will never stop being entertained by that notion. But in any case, we cannot deny that people have their behavior affected by the idea of Santa Claus. So in some sense, there is a form of existence, and we can categorize this as cultural existence in the fact that it is an idea that exists consistently within the conceptual space and has measurable real effect upon the physical plane. And in terms of media, if we take into account something like Harry Potter, where people view themselves in terms of Gryffindor or Slytherin or Hufflepuff or Ravenclaw, or just generally their interaction with the text, this can heavily shape your development, your existence. It could be something that you refer back to in times of trouble or simply whenever you're trying to fall asleep, in which case we're starting to get back to the, well, not back, because, <laughs> because here comes that season-long catchphrase again, something we're going to get to in a future episode. But basically something beyond the current topic. Therefore, it is important that we make a distinction between discussions of ontology versus the intersubjective, with the intersubjective just being a social form of our subjective experience of the ontological, or rather, the representation that the ontological takes in our subjective experience. And I think this relates to the Nietzschean, oh, there's our second Nietzsche reference there. And I will say that I don't agree with a lot of his ideas, and I definitely don't agree with this phrasing of this concept, but I do think it is a worthwhile concept to discuss. The distinction between the master and slave morality. 
Yeah, I I hate it. I <laughs> If only he could have been born 200 years later. Yes, that would place Nietzsche far beyond our current time span, but good god, maybe we could have gotten his useful insights apart from the gross aspects of his ironically culturally driven perspectives. But the concept essentially boiled down to the distinction between creating our values and virtues, this morality, through cultural imposition versus creating it on our own. And the use this concept has is in the distinguishment between the physical consistencies we can see in intersubjectivity on, say, the glass I have in front of me, Versus the cultural consistency within intersubjective space of virtues and values, which, while they do have an effect on us, while they are maintained over time, while there is consistency, they are subject to our own subjective apprehension of them. They can be denied, and while it might create difficulties within the intersubjective space, it will not create these same sort of irregularities between the subjective and intersubjective that something along the lines of the mental health issues we started out discussing, where the disagreement and apprehension isn't over the nature of what we might call reality or the physical or the manifest but where that disagreement is over the interpretation of this thing that goes beyond the subjective or the intersubjective. So to reiterate, this cultural existence would be intersubjectively maintained consistent concepts which impact our interpretation of whatever lies beyond our subjective or intersubjective apprehension of well <laughs> what lies beyond those things so from this i would like to reiterate my problems with objectivity this notion of somehow using the subjective to find the objective. This notion of implying objectivity to an inherently, an admittedly inherently, and obviously qualitatively subjective viewpoint of adding to it the idea of objectivity. The most we can find is an intersubjective consistency. But this leaves us in an awkward place of having to reckon with the fact that we are implying that there is something that we are deriving this consistency from. Now, we'll leave the ontological backbone of these theories for, and here it comes again, a future episode. But we can say at the moment, that it is worthwhile to put our emphasis on this intersubjectivity over objectivity. That when we discuss on an epistemic basis the foundations of knowledge, that it is not derived through objectivity, but intersubjectivity, peer review, 
the establishment of consistency within the subjective spheres of others. So we need to revisit or touch on, as we're going to revisit it in a more substantial way in a future episode, we need to touch on the idea of the thing in itself, at least insofar as we consider it to be truth. Now, it is worthwhile to question what we mean by truth, because as we can see, very prevalent in modern discourse, that that idea is controversial, which seems strange with our colloquial understanding of the idea of truth, because we, we see it as meaning the, the notion of what's really going on, the actual idea of the workings of the world, and in this subjectivist context, the true nature of these consistencies within our subjective sphere. But I would argue that this will to truth is more of a misapprehension of the notion of intersubjective reality. Because what happened and what there is, these objectivist realities, fall flat when compared to the notion of seeking out, well, who is involved, who benefits, quimodo. And more importantly, what are the intentions and motivations of the actors? Overall, I would like to once again reference Nietzsche in his challenge he poses to the idea of why do we value truth so highly? Why do we affirm the will to truth so positively over untruth? Which isn't a relativist distinction, at least in my mind, but rather a questioning of how we distinguish truth in fiction, how we distinguish reality from falsifications, and the sort of dubious nature of defaulting back, deferring to this idea of reality, because as we've discussed, it is intersubjective. It is an act of communal agreement that this or that is reality. The question isn't over what is true or untrue, but what is recognized as true or untrue. And it is important to keep this in mind because we often get lost in this idea of the narrative, of this consistent way that we view reality, not just our own observations, our own estimations of consistency, but consistencies which serve an interpretation so that would be the observations of consistencies which specifically lend themselves to an interpretation. And to, to return to the thing in itself, and I, I shudder at the idea that someone might clip together all instances of me talking about what I will eventually talk about. But we will examine the idea of the ontological, the thing in itself, in a future episode. Don't worry, it's also painful for me to say that phrase again. But what we can gain from this discussion is that prior to further consideration, we should default to the idea that we just don't know. That there should be some comfort in the idea that we are separated from the truth. Now, I, I, I say prior 
because I do think that any statement, any statement that positions itself to be fact, naturally implies some sort of ontology, that it reflects some sort of order in the nature of existence. So we will get back to that ontological question because it is naturally implied in our conversation. We as beings exist, and any sort of speculation we have over the nature of our experiences or most anything else is going to reflect back on that sort of existence, some sort of ontological order. But we're straying a bit from our topic of the intersubjective. So I'd like to touch on the idea of how we establish the idea of the objective within this intersubjective framework. And that's a royal we rather than a we as in myself and you, the listener. Now, with things in the what might be called physical reality, the way we establish this sense of objectivity through the intersubjective, I think it's fairly straightforward. If I hand you a a, uh, glass of orange juice, then we have confirmed that both of us agree that there is orange juice. Now to, I guess, enunciate (laughs) might be the word, to enunciate this mutual establishment of this reality, it might require me saying, Hey, I made you a glass of orange juice and extending the glass towards you and you saying thank you. Taking it, taking a sip and going, mmm, orange juice. (laughs) So, So let's get off of that very easy to conceive of level of subjective objectification and get into what might more traditionally be considered the subjective. The example I have in mind is the question of what's the best Metallica album? Because in my mind, if I were to say Master of Puppets, someone else might say, well, what about the Black Album? But just the same, if I were to say the Black Album, the obvious response would be, well, what about Master of Puppets? So for things that have been established long enough for there to be a form of group consensus, at least to the extent where maybe there isn't a specific consensus, but rather established strongholds of consensus. Then the question goes beyond what's the best Metallica album into, well, what's your favorite Metallica album? Now, I'm I'm not trying to make this into a music podcast, but this understanding of group opinion on music is a fantastic gateway to understanding our interaction with reality at large, especially things that fall along the subjective lines like values and virtues. Take our second example, Jimi Hendrix. Now, most anyone would find it uncontroversial to say Jimi Hendrix is the greatest guitar player of all time. And while you could argue that it's because of his technical skill with the instrument, you could argue that it's because of his innovative perspective on the instrument as a technology, his rapid acceptance of increasing ways to use his instrument, or just the subjective fact that Jimi Hendrix songs are good. (laughs) 
If you've never listened to Little Wing, pause this podcast and go listen to it now. It's good. But that's not why we say Jimi Hendrix is the greatest guitar player of all time. Of why, if you have a dissenting opinion, that it feels like you are going against reality itself, when this is inherently a subjective topic. The reason why is consensus that as a society, we seem to have agreed that Jimi Hendrix is the greatest guitar player of all time. So even if you, say, want to put forward Rory Gallagher, it goes against the grain because this idea has been cemented in our communal reality. It has become as much fact as any event in history. And I'm not bringing this up to doubt the virtuosity of Jimi Hendrix, but rather to extend this malleability to what we would consider the immutable, the material version of reality, this intersubjective communal reality, that the considerations that lie there are no different from the establishment of the fact that Jimi Hendrix is the greatest guitar player of all time. So what can we do with this? What does this idea of intersubjectivity mean for us in a practical way? I would say that the first thing is the widening of our conception of existence, of including this communal reality, of these ideas of the conceptual reality. Because when we're coming at things from a subjective standpoint, the consistency we can see in the physical and the conceptual, and the form of existence we can see in the physical and the conceptual, they don't really have a meaningful differentiation because the ways in which they are real to us, which is through this subjective viewpoint that we inherently, that we will always be viewing them from, There's no real distinction. It's just that when you're viewing something that is so grounded in the conceptual reality, such as a piece of media, when you get fully immersed in it, you forget that there is a more long-standing consistency in this physical reality. And whenever you're confronted with the distinction between the long-standing nature of the physical reality in contrast to the relatively short-form conceptual reality you were previously immersed in, it is natural to assume that what that more long-standing version of reality is the inherently true one and i'm not i'm not not saying that if you've been playing red dead redemption for seven hours and oh god you're just just so in sync with arthur morgan that that is your true reality no i'm i'm simply questioning the notion that the subjective reality we experience consistently throughout our lives has a special point as being more real than anything else. And I know the average response is going to be, well, it's common sense that is the more real thing. And that's the problem, that it's considered common sense to take for granted the truth of the things we experience. There's a distinction between saying that it's false versus saying that we should question this idea of our subjective realities, even our 
intersubjective realities being inherently true, we can even question the nature of, well, why does it have to be true? And <laughs> two for a third time. And once again, I guess this is going to be a podcast regular. I made a gesture, realized I am recording on audio and felt like a fool. But for the third time, here's my Nietzsche reference. That is just degrees of appearance. Now, that's not where I'm going to stop with this analysis, where I do think that some speculation on the ontological is valuable, but when we're talking about the intersubjective, it is helpful to deny this assumption of truth, of reality, that we have taken to be common sense, and begin with the viewpoint of it just being different degrees of appearance going from the purely subjective to the commonly interpreted intersubjective. The sun is above us. Is there a human on earth that can look up and see that big ball of gas and deny its appearance? We all see it. Or at least, we assume that we all see it. And this brings us to the next implication of this idea of intersubjectivity, which is the balancing of subjectivity. Now, subjectivism on its own could very easily lead to you acting as though you are the only person in the world, as you are the only person whose experience you experience. So by bringing in the idea of intersubjectivity, by acknowledging the fact that there, at the very least, plausibly seem to be other conscious beings with which we have to establish a consistent sense of communal reality, we can balance out this notion of subjectivity with the fact that it's not just us, that we have to contend with the fact that there are, or at least, reasonably seem to be beings outside of our subjective experience who we need to contend with. Yet this is not a call for collectivism. You can still see independence in the application of the idea of intersubjectivity because it is still fundamentally a denial of objectivity. And through this, we can gain independence through the questioning of the source of values. How do people determine what is healthy or unhealthy? How do people determine what is moral or immoral? While we still need to work within the intersubjective sphere, as we are social creatures, I will say again, and also, it's helpful to be able to live in society. If you would like to go off into the woods build yourself a cabin, pick blackberries, hunt fish to feed yourself, and I, that actually sounds very nice. <laughs> but if you want, uh, if you want to take part in society, there is some conformity you have to accept. You have, you, you can't kill anyone because they'll throw you in jail. You can't, 
Well, I mean, you can steal anything. You can't get caught for stealing anything, <laughs> at the very least. Or you you will have to deal with the repercussions of the values of society. However, we can still take the, the values and morals of society are simply what the collective consensus within this intersubjective reality is. And we can form our own values and virtues or at the very least, not take what is given to us for granted. For example, you can look on the internet to find, and I know that <laughs> suggesting anecdotal evidence on the internet is not a strong argument. This is just a placing of this idea in practical space. So if you've been listening, truth isn't really the focus here. It is the philosophical standpoints and their efficacy within a practical space so for example the very possibility that someone someone who knows that there is something wrong with their body they have lived in this meat for however many years going to a doctor and being turned away not being diagnosed not giving any tests not having their worries responded to with any sort of reciprocal concern other than saying, oh, you just need to lose weight. This idea that because we have established that a certain sort of body mass, a certain sort of ratio between weight and height is the norm, that is the acceptable thing, that someone saying, I know my body, this is not usual, something is wrong, can be turned away and denied by someone who has ostensibly taken an oath to do no harm, to treat people, to apply their medical knowledge, to be that function of society where they have taken all of this time to gain those skills that we cannot while serving our own roles within society, yet still turn someone away and refuse to do their job because they have this notion that, oh, it's about weight. You don't know your body. You have no understanding of your own reality. So, by taking in this notion of intersubjectivity, we can see on a philosophical level the problem there. Because there is this notion that there is an objective that there is an objective set weight for every single human being. That there is an objective relationship to reality, to health. And when this intersubjectivity, at least in the medical field, when this difference between our own personal lived lives, when that is denied, it can kill people. People die when they're not listened to. And I'm not saying that it happens in every situation, all the time. But that the importance of maintaining this as a principle, of maintaining this as a philosophical foundation, is that when we don't consider that we are not operating within an objective space, we are operating at best within an intersubjective reality, when we deny people the validity of their subjective realities, I can't see any viable notion of that being a practical solution to any 
problem. Thank you for listening to this episode on intersubjectivity. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, the link to The Curious Cat is in the description. And thank you for listening to The Subjective Space.